0: Hello and welcome to the J.G. Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain at J.G. Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the 12th chapter of Luke, verse 25, and let's get into it. Now, we are in the middle of this section where Jesus is teaching us not to worry. Now, I'm not going to reread this section since we did read it last time, but I do encourage you to go ahead and reread it. For yourselves but i want to continue with our commentary picking up with verses 25 and 26 where jesus says which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature now this indicates the folly of worrying over things such as the future over which we have no control no one by worrying can add to his height or to the length of his life And the expression, his stature, can also be translated to the length of his life. If that is so, why worry about the future? Rather, let us use all of our strength and our time to serve Christ, and let's leave the future to him. And verses 25 and 26 constitute still another argument from the lesser, which is adding minutes of life, possible inches to height, to the greater, with a total life and its needs. If it's futile to worry about small matters we cannot control, it's even more futile to worry about the larger matters that lies further beyond our control. And as a quick side note here, I just want to make a quick mention of the term cubit. And for those that don't know what a cubit is, it was an ancient measure of length that was approximately equal to the length of a man's forearm. It was typically about 18 inches though there was a long cubic of about 21 inches and we do see this unit of measurement a lot with um, the ark and with um, noah when we had the great flood when noah was building the ark he was giving measurements in cubits but continuing here in verses 27 and 28 we have the lilies that are introduced Next, to show the folly of spending one's finest talents in the obtaining of clothes. The lilies are probably wild scarlet flowers. They neither toil nor do they spin, yet they naturally rise even Solomon in all of his glory. If God lavishes such beauty on flowers which bloom today and are burned up tomorrow, will he be unmindful of the needs of his children? We prove ourselves to be of little faith when we worry, when we fret, and we rush around in a ceaseless struggle to get more and more material possessions. We waste our lives doing what God would have done for us now if we had only devoted our time and talents more to him. And Jesus gives two final examples of the lesser to greater argument. The first one, he contrasts the grandeur of Solomon, who could afford the finest clothes to common flowers, which can do nothing towards making clothes. And the second argument is the limited lifespan of flowers to the implied eternal life that lies before the disciples. Now, God's meticulous and lavish care for mere perishing flowers assures us of his unfailing care for his own people. In view of this, the disciples' little faith is all the more shameful. Now here in verses 29 to 31, Jesus repeats the prohibition against worry that we have in verse 22, though a different verb is used. It means be in suspense or be up in the air. And Jesus now contrasts the pagan Gentiles with believers with regard to the relation to material possessions. Now, pagans do not have the same relationship believers have with a loving, caring, and providing Heavenly Father. To know that God knows their needs is sufficient assurance for all believers. Secure in that knowledge, his disciples can turn all their attention to the kingdom of Jesus that he commands them to seek. And actually, our daily needs are small. It is wonderful how simply we can live. Why then give good goods and clothing such a prominent place in our lives? And why have an anxious mind worrying about the future? This is the way that unsaved people live. We do not know God as their Father. Concentrate on food, on clothing, and pleasures. These things form the very center and circumference of their existence. But God never intended that his children should spend their time in this mad rush for creature comforts. He has a work to be done on earth, and he has promised to care for those who give themselves wholeheartedly to him. If we seek his kingdom, he will never let us starve or be naked. How sad it would be, or how sad it would become, and realize that most of our time was spent enslaving for what was already included in the ticket home to heaven. Do not be afraid, in verse 32, introduces another contrast the little flock, which now needs to be fed and defended, and will one day inherit the kingdom and possessing its benefits and the authority. The fatherhood of God and its connection with the grieving of the kingdom are themes especially characteristic of Matthew. This encouragement to fear is appropriate in view of the hostility of the experts of the law, who instead of opening the way to the kingdom and its truth, they stand in the way of those who seek it. The disciples formed a little flock of defenseless sheep sent out into the midst of an unfriendly world. They had, it is true, no visible means of support or defense, yet this group of young men was destined to inherit the kingdom with Christ. They would one day reign with him all over the earth. In view of this, the Lord encouraged them not to fear, because if the Father had such glorious honors in store for them, then they need not worry about the pathway that lay between. So we have in verses 33 and 34 the injunction to sell your possessions. And this concludes Jesus' exhortation on the treasure theme. It is difficult to know whether the reason for this exhortation is to benefit the poor or to rid the disciples of, of encumbering possessions. The contrast point of this, however, seems to be the total dependence Of Jesus' disciples on God. And the word all is neither present nor implied before the word possessions. As we have seen, the point of Jesus' teaching on treasures is that they are not to be hoarded for one's own selfish pleasures. And nevertheless, the interpreter must be careful to blunt Jesus' strong teaching regarding a life of abandonment and giving. And one should live on such a modest level of sustenance that the only purses are those, the ones needed for heavenly treasure. And by their nature, such purses purses are never moth-eaten, nor are they ever stolen. And instead of accumulating material possessions and, and planning for time, they can put these possessions to work for the Lord. And in this way, they would be investing for heaven and for eternity. The ravages of age could not affect their possessions. Heavenly treasures are fully insured against theft and against spoilage. The trouble with material wealth is that or not have it without trusting it. And that's why the Lord Jesus said, "'Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.'" If we send our money on ahead, then our affections will be weaned from the perishing things of this world. And the verse shows the essential thrust of Jesus' teaching. It is not the extent, but the place of one's possessions that is emphasized, because it is in the direction of one's heart, heavenward or earthward. And that is important. Let's take a quick side note here, because this is also part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was right at home when he was talking about heaven. His language here is superb, and the words are perhaps among the most important he's ever uttered. Christians are citizens of heaven who only live here temporarily. Jesus Jesus teaches not to focus on earthly concerns, but rather to give generously and to walk in faith that the Lord will provide. Jesus says, seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. The Lord will provide for all needs and desires if we use the excess of what he has given us to minister to others. In this way, we become a channel for God to do his work in this world. And only that which we give to God is ours forever. Said one man to another of an acquaintance who had just died, how much did he leave? And the other answered, "He left it all. Well, shortly we must, <clears throat> every one of us, leave our earthly tent and leave to others that which we have called ourselves. What will matter then ahead for a reservation in the eternal mansion of God?" And to continue here with the readiness for the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus goes on to contrast the attitude of the alert Christian to that of the pagans who seek only the things of this present world. The word watching that we will see in verse 37 will express the theme of this passage. The theme we'll see in verses 30 to 37 and the parable that will be in verse point clearly to the necessity of being ready for the son of man. In this section, Luke concentrates much of the Lord's teaching on the implications of his sudden return. So, we're going to get into the section of the parable of the watchful, watchful servant, the faithful servant, and the evil servant. So, turn with me, if you will, to verse 35, and let's pick up our reading. Verse 35 begins Let your waist be girded, uh, girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from me. When he comes to knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. And truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed these things deserving a stripe, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of of him, they will ask the more. Now, let's go back to verse 35. And not only were the disciples to trust the Lord for their needs, they were to live in constant expectancy of his coming again. In Jesus's time, a person dressed ready for service. He tucked his flowing outer robe under his belt or his sash. And this was done to prepare for travel or for fighting or for work. Their waist was to be girded, their lamps burning. And in eastern lands, a belt was drawn around the waist to hold up the long flowing garment when a person was about to walk or to run, because that outward garment would have tangled into their feet and they would have fell down. The girded waist speaks of a mission to be accomplished, and the burning lamp suggests a testimony to be maintained. Now let's look at verse 36. This will be the final verse for this time. The disciples were to live in a moment-by-moment expectation of the Lord's return, as if he were a man returning from a wedding. They should be free from all earthly burdens, so that the moment the Lord knocks, according to the fear, they may open immediately without distraction or having to get ready. Their hearts are waiting for him, for their Lord. They love him. They're waiting for him. He knocks and they open to him immediately. The details of the story concerning the man returning from the wedding should not be pressed as far as the prophetic future is concerned. We should not identify the wedding here with the marriage supper of the lamb or the man's return with the rapture. The Lord's story was designed to teach one simple truth, namely watchfulness for his return. It was not intended to set us forth the order that is coming. And Jesus pictures servants waiting for their master with burning lamps. And we can refer back to the book of Matthew, chapter 25, the first three verses on this. When the master does arrive, there's a striking reversal of rules as he dresses himself to serve and waits on the servants. If the return is late in the night or toward the morning, the alertness of the servants is even more commended. And with that, we are out of time. So I'm going to stop there and we'll pick this up with verse 37 for next time. And until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.